agus mire bwikas as glacol ma cuire ven jalen concursi aknamerte agus na dutlan mora tos or gor atomit kuna flir new i'm so pleased that you were all able to accept the invitation to be uh, with us this morning uh, to debate uh, to hear from two very distinguished people who I believe are leading the debate, uh, leading our entry into what I hope will be a new paradigm of connection between economy and society. The, the background to today's uh, meeting is that when I was inaugurated just exactly a year ago yesterday for my second term, I said that there would be three major themes that would start immediately. One was very much uh, one island, shared Ireland, and in, on that first project I've had a number of different events, including the visit of the victims of Birmingham, the Birmingham bombings and others, and interactive events that have initiated between the ORS and institutions in Northern Ireland. The second was on the importance of culture in all its forms, traditional, modern, and very much also as well in, in, in terms of the role of the Irish language. But today is, is the third one. It was on transformation and participation. And I think uh, one of the things we are really, I'm hoping, just as, as Professor Mary Murphy has said, and I do want to thank from the bottom of my heart, the speakers have made an extraordinary effort to be with us from a very, very huge demanding schedule. But I also want to thank Mary, for who is going to chair uh, uh, today's events. And it is, as she says, uh, that I'm hoping that this is a stone thrown into a pool, a pool that has maybe where the flow of the water isn't very visible anymore, and that it's a ripple may emerge in what has been fairly stagnant water. And that is a discussion on the kind of economics that is necessary for us to face our challenges. I was encouraged also by some extraordinary uh, allies in relation to such a view. I think the Irish Independent just a few days ago had a, a photograph of Joseph Stiglitz under the title, Unfettered Neoliberalism Will Literally Destroy Our Civilization. It's time for a new era of enlightenment. And I did think what had happened that spring and the weight and all of the rest of it and equilibrium and so on, but welcoming conversions, however late and, <coughs> and however suggested, all are welcome because our purpose is in fact actually to move to a new place in economic theory, discussion, policy, practice in a connected way that will enable us to deal with triple interacting crises of an ecological, economic and indeed of a social cohesion kind. And I, I could, I didn't, there are members here representing political parties. Thank you, because I know what a difficult time you are in the preparing for the budget. There are former prime ministers, Joan is here, and so many others. You know who are here. I do want to say a word to a large group that, uh, who responded with alacrity, and that is the Foundation for Fiscal Studies. 
And I'm getting my question in, really, at the end. Uh, how will you deal with... Can you deal with what I'm saying at all? Or have you such a privileged existence as uh, the fiscal studies compartment of economics that you really don't want to talk to anyone else? Uh, then can you live with what you're going to hear today from the distinguished uh, guest that I have invited? And are you, how do you answer the question? Good questions that I think are there is that we could all try our best at regional, global, even in fact actually at continental level and be still defeated by those who are not accountable at all. So that you want maybe just read the weather signs rather than listening uh, to a new paradigm shift in economics. So I'm changing my approach in relation to giving lectures. I know there are many who would be very disappointed if I didn't give one of my very long ones. <laughs> so, I, so what I've decided to do is to make that full text available for everybody uh, at, at the end of the, the session. I think I'm going to press in my paper rather instead and, and in the beginning. And also I'm very conscious of doing so is that some of the themes that I've been addressing uh, will be better dealt with by the two other speakers. There are two people whose work I have leaned on so heavily in those different papers that I have given in different, way, in different places. And I'm meeting, I must say, if I appear trying to introduce uh, an, an atmosphere to, to our discussion, I am very conscious of the price that has been paid for the interacting crisis to which uh, I have referred. And part of that then is the rethinking, not just the rethinking of economics, but very particularly the role of the state. I think uh, we are very fortunate to have two leading, courageous, rigorous, rigorously scholarly contributors to help us the, uh, this morning. And we're very grateful to Mary Murphy, who has, has chaired so many fine discussions uh, on, on equality. So that, that is that. I think uh, something that is very, very important, I've said it is one of the themes of my uh, presidency, to deal with transformation. And in transformation, there is the role of the state in achieving that transformation. Another topic that you will have found in my speeches before is that I argue that literacy was a powerful assistance to enabling the case for the franchise, for the vote, for parliamentary democracy. And I think that a fiscal and economic literacy that can now be participated in by the widespread public is in fact essential to save democracy itself. Uh, I think that as well as that, uh, the acknowledgement of the role of the state, we're coming out of a period uh, in which to some extent uh, many people within the state find, who have made fine contributions and who came in with the finest intentions into the state have begun to accept the caricature of them that was in fact invented by their opponents and their enemies. And I think the public is suffering from that. 
It's suffering not only from that, if you like, accepting of a lesser version of yourself and of what you do and its importance, but also of the slavish importation of failed and boring methods of dealing with the public, including the loss of empathy in the name of efficiency, the deepening of authoritarian rather than authoritarianism rather than its elimination. And all of that fits in to the great themes as to the kind of transformation uh, that we leave. And I think one of the reasons I here as president, this is one of the very first initiatives that ever happened in Horace and Uthron. And I do so in the interests of democracy. It's a very long time now when those people who say, if I was to say, there are those who are heavily funded, heavily quite, quite organised, who are very interested in, in fact, ending the role of the state and certainly having it in as weak a position as possible. And you might have referred, expected people like me to immediately turn to the Montpellerin Society or whatever. But actually, I don't have to go that far back. I think of new modern writers such as Gilles Saint-Paul, for example, who is defending what he calls individual freedom and individual choice. He's protecting, he suggests, people from the creeping paternalism. And the creeping paternalism, he says, the intellectual evolution, if translated into a political doctrine, jeopardises the whole Lockean system of political organisation, because that system rests on the existence and legitimacy of rational individual aspirations and on the applicability of individual responsibility. Those who advocate government intervention must bear the burden of proof. They must provide an argument as to why the laissez-faire outcome is unsatisfactory. So the thinking is alive and well, and growing and well-funded and represented in some of the major foundations who occasionally affect a philanthropic veneer so as to hide, in fact, what is, in fact, what it is that they are defending. I think that there is a striking absolutism in the new literature on this topic. I also have to say, as somebody in so pleased as some of my former colleagues, some, of my new, some new succeeding colleagues are here, how important it is that we have a pluralist teaching. No one could possibly say that what is happening in economic teaching right across the North American continent, for example, in such courses as Economics 101, but here in Ireland even as well, the extent to which you have a genuine range of models, a genuine range of the, even the, <laughs> for, for the old aspiration to be a science and all of the rest of it, of a hypothesis that is tested to find the generic principle, which then becomes that which is tested, which generates other hypotheses which are empirically tested. It is not happening, and therefore what you have had is a kind of colonization across a very, into a very narrow method that is not a theory, but at the same time is representing the hegemonic force of a set of assumptions that are not submitted to empirical test and in fact are continually reviewed in more, more continually renewed really rhetorically rather than empirically i think that i have can you can read the the full version of this uh, if you uh, for your irritation or pleasure as <laughs> later on but i'm very pleased that there is 
a turning of the wheel in relation to writing too. And it's reflected, not at the authors that we're here today, Professor Zingoff and Mariana Massacato, but also in such people as Sylvia Wolby and Kate, Kate Ronald, Kate, Kate, and uh, donut economics. But I think th- th- there is something happening that is w- worthwhile as well. And it is the public recoil across Europe, across the world, to auster- an austerity fueled worldview. A very good example, I was recently in the Lebanon. And there, in relation to the planet, the commitments made in Paris under Cedra to relieve Lebanon of its fiscal, of its debts and whatever. The Deputy Prime Minister announced that there would be a new social market economy. Then pressure came on to actually deal with the fiscal issue first. Social floor is not in place. And suddenly you have people holding hands across the Lebanon and in a confessional state lacking the institutional means of giving expression to what they might want by way of alternatives. But we cannot afford lazy thinking anymore. That is not populism. There are forms of populism that are indeed dangerous. But the populism that is on the streets of Santiago in Chile, the women who were in fact worried about their hungry children, about the consequences, for example, of Milton Friedman and Rose and the PhD class moving to Santiago to implement the privatization of the economy, the effect that had on education, that they're stuck with the 1980s Pinochet constitution, and so forth. You can't lay easily say that this is just populism. It is about so much more. And that is why intellectual work and that is why the seminars are so important and why I'm so encouraging you to organise your own, uh, to bring the transition into being, to allow the new paradigm to actually become a source of hope in people's lives. There are evidences that even at that very larger level there are some changes taking place. The World Bank, which has in its day condemned agriculture in Africa, but then later changed its mind and then decided that education was a great place for investment in Africa and privatised education and so forth, is beginning, in fact, to use new metrics. So that's, I suppose, world-shaking. But equally, there is their new thing in relation, their new program, their new program, for example, that has come out in relation to looking at at value, at, at, at what has happened in relation to the changed structure of production internationally, is not very exciting. I think as well. Uh, what I think we have happened, and it's something that we can break away from. I'm not inventing the concept of paradigm shift. It is there in the Keynesian shift. It was very, very interesting how, for example, you had the resurrection of the thoughts of Friedrich van Hayek and Friedman and how they took off and influenced everybody. So it was rather like as if it were to use a theological analogy. It's as if we were having an affair with natural law. It's coming and it's going, but there's all was only the one model and so on. And thus when you press people, some of the Nobel Prize winners for example, to say what would you teach now in first year if you're teaching economics? And you get a surprising result. Would you teach Samuelson? Ah, it would be hard to beat Samuelson and so on. So the point is the old deep bedded assumptions need critique I think. And then I think as well there is good news. The OECD 
Although it's not a report of their secretariat, yet it is brought into existence beyond growth towards a new economic approach. And I know that Professor Mazzucata is a member of this advisory group. And it, they concluded, I think, um, though modified and improved, policymakers are still operating within the pre-crisis economic model and its accompanying forms of policy. We believe that more radical rethinking is required, economic needs properly to understand the sociality of human life. Our conception of economic progress needs to extend beyond individual material prosperity to include indicators of social well-being, cohesion and empowerment, and the environmental boundaries of human activity. It's up to you to decide when you have your own meetings beyond all of this as to whether kind of if like a modicum of behavioural economics will do on the existing flawed model or whether in fact you want to put in a few flavours as well in relation to reductive psychologism and say that that will do. I believe in fact that the challenge is deeper. I think... Uh, very, very, very much. I think something that's the exciting part of all of this. If we just thought about the OECD's new growth narrative report, and um, I think it, it, it acknowledges what I think I've been saying, because it says the frameworks and prescriptions which have dominated policymaking in recent decades are no longer able to generate the solutions to the problems and challenges we face today. We need a less incremental more profound change. Now, that's very, very important. And then you come on to the whole notion of what I mentioned, of an effective literacy to enable what people like Habermas and others have been discussing as a deliberative democracy, where people can, in an informed way, uh, with nobody saying to them, rah, like, you know, it's... A long time when I was starting out in politics, when priests could say, there are books we have to read that you can't read that wouldn't be good for you. There are aspects of economics that we must understand that you wouldn't understand because it wouldn't be good for you and certainly not good for politics. So therefore, the, we must, in fact, get over these elitist, exclusive traditions that have crept in to the commentary in relation to economics. Then I think in relation to the challenges that I face, there are ones in relation, it's very important, let us say, I, we remember many of us older people who, in fact, were interested in the environment. It is an intergenerational challenge now, but it is not the task of any one generation. I think moving, and you hopefully you will today reflect on what you hear, on what would be involved in a steady-state eco-social paradigm that came to replace what we have now. I think it is philosophically, where I'm coming to the end, we live in a, in a, in a, in a, in a we wish not just to have a, a cranky argument about it, the connection with economics, social policy, whatever. It is about how we live. And how are we to exit from the consequences of a life that has been predicated on an extreme individualism? How we must come together, merging consciousnesses, to achieve the changes that we need. We need to, make, make, to merge three great consciousnesses, a new consciousness in ecological matters, a consciousness in relation that has gone faded away, and why global poverty? And I don't mean extreme poverty 
measured at $1.95, upon which, we're making, which, which you can suggest a metric of success. With all of those 2.3 billion who exist under a metric of, of let's say, $4.95 and so on. How we, how we are to succeed there? And then in discussing all of this, not only allowing everything to be properly, to have a stretch in the university curriculum, but to be able to speak with respect to each other of notions of solidarity and empathy, and most important, about social cohesion. And then there will be the old one. It's rather like the point about it is that sometimes on multilateralism at New York and people would say, you can say all that at the General Assembly, but it's the Security Council that the real decision-making takes place. You could get something like that as well in relation to those of us who favour social economics, is that this isn't come out, this isn't hard economics. That's soft stuff. But I believe that there's nothing in the economic discourse, flexibility, globalization, productivity, innovation, social protection, decent work, economic growth itself, that, that cannot be discussed within an active state context. And then I think as well, I'm so pleased to be that we're here. There is such an importance to the speakers you will, you will hear. I think uh, very, very much in... in, in Ian's book, Heat, Greed and Human, Ian Goff's book, uh, Heat, Greed and Human Need, for me, when I was preparing speeches and so forth, did bring these different dimensions together in a very valuable statement. He advocates gender equality, redistribution, and a reconfigured social consumption and investment strategy. And I think that this is just so very, very important. Similarly, in relation to Professor Mazzucato's work, it was like a, a light that when it came in relation to a new discussion on value. And I, I think as well, the suggestion that maybe it would all roll past us, that is in fact actually to just simply give a gentle wave at a capitalism without responsibility. Because it is a question to which I have no answer. Is democracy possible in a global, in a financialized global version of the economy without accountability mechanisms? And can you say that, therefore, that you can invite publics to exercise its choices on that which you can exercise, over that which you can exercise uh, no control? I think equally, when I had said about it all, that... I think the most radical point I took out of Mariana Mascara's work originally when I looked at it first was her seeking to uncover from what wealth actually emanates and of course when it accrues and congeals. And I think Sylvia Wolby, whom I mentioned, and quote you will see in the long version of my paper, it was how the effect of the fiscal crisis cascaded through a society and with what consequences. I remember that the Secretary General of the Council of Europe is the only person to commission a Europe on the impact of austerity on across, on a cross European uh, uh, basis and the controversy that that uh, on the controversy that that caused. And the final writer that is in my long paper to whom I have been making reference is of course Hartmut Rosa, whose original book Acceleration was a very important book, but is even more important is his more recent work, Resonance. 
Albert Rosa puts it, it is from the act of breathing to the adoption of culturally distinct worldviews. All the great crises of modern society, ecological, democratic, psychological, can be understood and analysed in terms of resonance and our broken relationship to the world around us. How do we take the world into us? How are we taken into the world? And in what circumstances? And what disciplines you are able to draw from if you take such a, a, a perspective? Again, enabling us to deal with issues of ecological economy, society, administration, and co co social cohesion. In fact, another way for these three interact these different interacting crises is to regard it as a catastrophe of resonance that affects how we relate to each other. The loss of empathy, the suggestion that efficiency requires coldness rather than warmth, the quiet acceptance of authoritarianism, the definition of what you do is lesser, and so forth. So all these works are going in a certain direction. But what is very, very important is that the preparation, good, rigorous work, and particularly from those of you who won't break for such discipline for yourself and your published work, and I'm so grateful that you're here, that you will discuss these issues, and also finally then as well, won't quite facing us in a way. It is, I think, when I was starting out at the age of 28 in politics, one of the very early things we used to discuss was the impact of science and technology on society. And we used to have big meetings on science and technology and the use of war. Of course, we're listening to this again. And then we didn't reason about how could science and technology be responsibly introduced to give a universal citizen benefit and so forth. And these are all issues that do fit together and can be discussed and indeed and enable us, as Amartya Sen would have put, to enable all of our citizens to participate in their society without shame. I think what I think in, in many cases, what we need to do then many is how did we move as well in relation to the general thinking in cultural terms from how a sufficiency model would now be regarded as very old-fashioned to one of, in fact, living with insatiability. I think there is very, very, very interesting things that we're doing. It isn't really those in the public service in many, many cases who sometimes have lost their nerve and chosen to define themselves and the caricatures of others. But even in relation to where I spent a lot of my life in the academy, where, I'd, where in many, many cases, now, in fact, the evaluations are very much on the basis of what are assumed without empirical verification to be better business models. And again, in relation to some of the specialist posts in the Irish civil service itself, that before that you can get to an interview, for any of these into which you may in fact want to make a contribution, you will have to go through the psychometric testing of a private company that has been contracted out, like all the thousands of other things where the damaged state was forced to give out one contract after another to people whose values they never tested. So the notion about it is people will go for a psychometric test to listen to psychobabble, the person to who is reporting to you is late with their report. Should you report it, will you write it yourself? Will you tell them that this is their last chance? Or will you go to your superior and say, my apologies? What should you do? 
And depending on that, you will be able, in fact, then to fill in an application to be in the departments of agriculture and science, the departure of food, the departure of health, the departure of foreign affairs. You will not get an early interview straight into any one of these without the psychobabble threshold having been passed first. Now, Really, this is the point. That is why it is so important that, in fact, an occasion like this is not only one to which you have come, but I hope that you take it away and run your own so as to start a great conversation on how we might have, if you like, a new paradigm that is able to integrate important issues of ethics, ecology, economy, science, living together, and how, in fact, actually, we might have a republic of which we might be proud and of which we might speak to others. Thank you.